so we're looking at the faithful defense of Christianity, and we are learning uh, how to understand the apologetic task. We started by looking at the, uh, the unbelieving mind and the fact that there is an antithesis between uh, believers and unbelievers. We talked about the difference between the unbelieving and the believing use of reason. And as we said, the um, believers use reason, but they start from uh, a platform of faith. And then unbelievers also use, use reason, but their starting point is rebellious unbelief. So it's not that unbelievers, don't make the mistake of thinking that unbelievers rely on reason and believers rely on faith. Um, both believers and unbelievers make use of reason. But believers reason from a position of trusting God rather than uh, denying him and suppressing his truth. Unbelievers, they have abandoned the creator of reason, and so they make use of reason, but they do so with a lot of error. Okay? So they use reason, we use reason, they just use reason wrongly, we use reason uh, from a start starting point of faith. That's not to say that all of our reason, our use of reasoning is good or right or proper or consistent, but that's what we want to grow in. We at least have a, a proper starting point for the use of reason. So we started to explore some of that last time and clarify. We were trying to clarify the nature of the apologetic task, and we plan to continue to uh, have that discussion tonight. We started with the first point, uh, just clarifying the apologetic task that was point number one if you I don't know if you wrote that down or not but clarifying the apologetic task and remember we were making the point that we defend the faith not um, not in piecemeal not little isolated bits and parts and pieces of propositional truth we said that Christianity is not like a, a set of steps it's not like a 12-step program to get yourself to heaven when you die uh, Christianity is rather an integrated system of, of philosophy. It's comprehensive. It's all joined together. Uh, so it's a way of life that is built consistently from the ground up. Okay? Uh, we learned from Van Til, um, and here's the quote, Apologetics is the vindication of the Christian philosophy of life against the various forms of the non-Christian philosophy of life. I like that quote because it's, it's a specific in its use of a definite article there. Apologetics is the vindication of the, just one, the Christian philosophy of life against the various forms, plural, of the, singular, non-Christian philosophy of life. So there is one non-Christian philosophy of life, and then there's a Christian philosophy of life. And in the non-Christian philosophy of life, there are many forms. Uh, Mormonism and Islam and secularism and on and on it goes. Okay, so we see all that, but it's really just one system. We have to think of uh, we have to think of Christian theism as a unit and explain it and teach it as a unit, and then also defend Christian theism as a unit. So we start with a, a Christian foundation, a distinctively Christian foundation, and then we build our life and behavior up from that foundation. The first, uh, remember, we went through the three different parts of a worldview. Do you remember that? Uh, so any, can anybody name those three parts? Yes, Chuck? Give me just one. What's the most foundational? Um, 
I was thinking of the last two. Oh, I knew I'd do that. Okay, so Karen. Metaphysics. Metaphysics, that's the foundation. So you give me the second one. Um, I forgot now, I'm all flustered. Oh, no. Epistemological. Yes, epistemology. Okay, good. And then, Doug, the last one? Ethics. Ethics, good. I knew that. So, so metaphysics. I know you. Teach me to raise my hand again. <laughs> you will pay for that. Um, yeah, so the, the first and most fundamental part of a, of a worldview is its metaphysics. Uh, and the Christian worldview is no different. Christians have an understanding of metaphysics. Metaphysics is not a dirty word. It's not a bad word. It's just uh, not something we use all the time. Metaphysics just refers to the study of what is, what exists. It's the study of being, okay? Um, so that involves first, uh, you know, we're talking about uh, not only the, the being of humanity, but more fundamentally, the being of God. And then, yeah, creation flowing out of that and, and then our being coming out of that. So. And we're talking about metaphysics, we're talking about, first of all, ontology, and in a Christian worldview, ontology doesn't just have to do with the being of man, it has to do with theology, okay? So the being of God, and study of God. And then also the study of creation, so cosmology, and then also the study of, of man, anthropology, angels, angelology, demonology. So then um, we need to understand in metaphysics that the existence of creation, the nature of all being, mankind or angel kind, uh, all being depends upon God's being. If, if God's being isn't there to, to begin with, um, then there is going to be no being flowing from that, right? Okay? So that's, that's metaphysics. The second aspect of any worldview involves epistemology. Uh, Christianity has a distinctly Christian view of epistemology. Again, epistemology is just a fancy $2 philosophical word for the study of knowing, how we, how we know what we know, how we can know anything. So based on our metaphysics, our study of being, ontology, and all that, epistemology asks questions about then authority, and it asks questions about the interpretation of experience, um, how we know what we know. So do we know what we know by reason and intuition? Uh, just by what's contained in the mind, or do we know what we know? Is the mind only informed by what's outside of us, so that we, we learn by observation and experience? Are we able to know anything beyond scientific observation? Is the scientific method going to be the arbiter of all truth and tell us what is? And anything beyond the scientific method, we can't get to. Uh, is that the case? Or is everything validly knowable, the result of scientific inquiry only, or are there truths and realities uh, that cannot be verified by the limitations of science, can do not subject themselves to the study of the, you know, the scientific method, uh, which are nonetheless true and real and absolutely essential? What do we say as Christians to that question? Is, is there? Yes, there is. Yes. Absolutely, there are. There like are many what? things that are not subject to scientific inquiry. Correct. Like? Like, for example, uh, can you prove scientifically what you had for breakfast yesterday morning? No. <laughs> no. Rod is laughing. I don't know. Can I? Uh, can, I can I look at my blood? Perhaps historically you could. You okay. could get a witness. Scat studies? Scatological studies? So, so let's just say, let's just let's just go real easy. I, Christy, you're going to say? Or just say anything that's not material. 
Anything that's not material, such as? The soul. The soul, the mind. Emotions. How about this? Laws of logic. Are they material or immaterial? Laws of logic. What about, what about mathematics? The whole world of numbers. Is that material reality or immaterial reality? It's immaterial, isn't it? There's a lot that we rely on and, and use that's immaterial in nature. Laws of logic, mathematics, mathematic rules. Um, but let's, let's go even further back. Uh, miracles? You, how are you going to subject miracles, which are by definition supernatural, to the study of, you know, to scientific inquiry? What about creation itself, the cosmos coming into existence? Is that subject to scientific uh, methodology? No. It's not. So there are some things that are known. Anyway, that's a Christian worldview, so we're asking those kinds of questions. How do we know what we know? Does the use of reason involve or exclude the existence of the supernatural? Are we open to the possibility of miracles, or are we like materialists today who believe all that exists is matter, or empiricists, are we biased against miracles, like so many people we talk to? So... You guys got all that. So thirdly, every worldview has a view of ethics. And ethics is going to be built on an epistemology, which is going to be built on a metaphysics. Okay? So how we should behave. This is the question of ethics. How we should behave in light of our metaphysics and in light of our epistemology. If all that exists are atoms bouncing off of one another, acting and reacting, then it's really nonsensical to speak about right and wrong. So it doesn't make any sense to talk about good and evil, beauty, goodness, all those kind of ideas, if all that exists is atoms and material, uh, material reality. Makes really no sense to always tell the truth. In fact, why not lie and deceive to get ahead on somebody else? Because all we are is animals, right? Uh, makes no sense to help the weak. Instead, if a materialist, empiricist worldview is true, may actually make sense to prey upon the weak, take advantage of those who can't help themselves. Might makes right. So those are all parts of a worldview. Metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, all those parts make up a Christian worldview as well. We have a distinctively Christian understanding, and they're all wedded together. Christian metaphysics begins with the triune God, who is the ground and the source of all being. Christian, Christian epistemology uh, tells us that all knowledge comes from God, who reveals himself in both general and special revelation. Uh, and then Christian ethics comes, it's based on Christian metaphysics and then epistemology because everything that we understand about how we're to behave comes from the word of God. I mean, there is a law of God written on our hearts, which is general revelation. There's a conscience that accuses or defends us. But there is this written word, Ten Commandments, right? Chiseled on stone. There is a, the law and the prophets, the writings and the New Testament. All of it is telling us how we are to ethically interact and behave with one another, right? So when we defend Christianity, we vindicate that comprehensive worldview against the non-Christian worldview. All those parts are connected with all the other parts and each is inextricably linked to one another as a comprehensive philosophy. You can't just defend one without defending the other. You must assume all of it, okay? 
So, last time I started to illustrate the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian view of metaphysics, and that's the second point, number two, illustrating the apologetic task. I think I was actually using subpoints last time, A, B, C, so we're going we're to scrap that and just redo the outline and do that. So I said one, this is two, illustrating the apologetic task. Um, and actually, the, the fundamental foundational dividing line between, as you might imagine, uh, between the two believing and unbelieving worldviews deals with metaphysics. Okay, So it, this is an argument that starts foundationally with a question of metaphysics. What is the nature of reality? What is? What is the nature of being? Okay, So that's, that's where we're, we're down to. And I know we're not, you know, conversant in this. Uh, just naturally, we're usually thinking about, you know, how do I how do I find the cheapest milk? Uh, you know, how do I find <laughs> stuff on sale and, you know, get new clothes and get to school on time and all that. That's we're not thinking about metaphysics and the nature of being and ontology and all that. We start talking like that, um, people just want to get away from us fast. <laughs> So this is not how you engage in, in a conversation with unbelievers. You know, you step in and say, hey, tell me about your fundamental ontology. Tell me, you know, explain your metaphysics to me. You'll be like, meta what? Are you talking to L. Ron Hubbard or something? So that's Dianetics, right? Dianetics, right? And it's not that either. We're not going to get into that. Yeah, thank you. So um, I gave you a quote last time for, uh, from Cornelius Van Til, and it crystallizes that dividing line for us. And then we sort of got lost in the weeds. Uh, so what I'm going to do now is we're going to crawl around carefully. We're not going to get out of the weeds, actually. I'm not going to rescue you. No. We're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're just going to slow down a bit, okay? We're going to pick our way through, walk through. Uh, the reasoning there here. And the reason I'm doing this is because it's really, really important. If you get this down and if you grasp this, you're going to understand how to deal not just with like the Mormon on your doorstep or the Jehovah's Witness or, you know, your Roman Catholic friend or whatever. If you get this down and grasp this, you are going to understand how to deal with any non-Christian worldview because it's really just one worldview. Okay. You can, you can deal with whatever's religious or secular. You can deal with what's, you know, philosophically astute or inanely stupid. Uh, either way, you can deal with it. So if you get this down, you're going to see where every believer or every unbeliever, I should say, is coming from. So before we walk through some of that, let me give you an illustration. Imagine that your life is like a battlefront. Okay. I'm sorry. I always think in terms of military analogies. It's it's. It's my Achilles heel. But imagine your life is like a battlefront. As you walk through the world, you are facing all different lines of battle. You're facing all different types, uh, kinds of opposition. It's really not hard as a Christian to imagine this because Ephesians 6, 10 to 20 says we are, in fact, facing a battle. So you are fighting on all these battlefronts. You're fighting the same enemy. But sometimes you're getting hit from a distance by a barrage of artillery shells. And sometimes you're taking fire from hidden snipers, enemy snipers. Sometimes it's tanks or infantry or bombs falling from the sky. All same enemy, different kinds of attacks, different strategies and tactics. Same enemy, though. So in fighting this war, 
And in facing all these different threats, you need to learn how to deal with artillery fire and mortar fire and snipers and tanks and infantry and bombings. You need to learn how to fight all those different kinds of battle. The face of the battle is going to look different. But what if you could fight the war at the same time concurrently with fighting all the different infantry and artillery and bombs and all that kind of stuff? What if you could fight the war by removing the supply? By going behind their supply lines and taking away what's giving them all their shells and bombs and everything else. What if you could drain the enemy bank account so that uh, they can no longer purchase ammunition that's causing all those casualties? What if you could destroy their fuel supply so they, no, they can no longer drive tanks and fly planes and fortify and supply infantry with their truck convoys and all the rest? You see the analogy that I'm making comparing it to apologetics? Most traditional apologetics focuses on individual kinds of threats. So defending the faith against Mormons or JWs or Hindus or Muslims or Western secularists, all that, all that kind of stuff. And don't get me wrong, we do need to understand how to do that. We, we do need to learn to fight all those different battles. We do, we do need to learn how to answer the Mormon and the Hindu because they are, they are, there, is some, there are some differences there and you understand how to deal with those things. But, and, and perhaps, like I said, we're going to extend this course maybe to allow me to do that. Maybe I'll just do a night on Mormonism and a night on different things so that you guys can have some of that in hand. I've resisted that because I want to get to this. You know, I want to, I want to help you to understand. You need to understand that no matter what the worldview, no matter what the religion, no matter what the system of philosophy, they really all represent the one insane enemy. They, they represent Satan is demonic doctrines, and they all share the same starting point. Satan and his demonic host, this is what they embraced when they left heaven. Um, Adam and Eve in the fall, along with Cain and Nimrod, the fallen line of men. Uh, you think about Baalism and the Ashereth and Moloch worshippers of the Old Testament. You think about Judaizers, Gnostics, uh, Nicolaitans in the New Testament. You think about the Ar Arian controversy, Pelagians, Manichaeans, Sibelians. Think about the apostate church of Rome or the aberrant heretical Munsterites in Luther's day. Take that all the way down through time to our own day and all the isms and schisms and cultists and world religions, along with all the atheists, agnostics, and and secularists, it's all the same enemy. And it's all the same starting point. It's all the same departure from God. And the dividing line is the same between believer and unbeliever in every single case. That's what I want you to understand, okay? So it started with Satan. And we saw it in his temptation of Eve in the Garden of Eden. And here it is, going back to that quote from Cornelius Van Til. Here's the quote. And I'm going to add a couple words just to make it abundantly clear. For the Christian theist, possibility has its source in God, while for the anti-theist, that is all non-Christians, God has his source in possibility. That is the dividing line that separates believer from unbeliever. The only thing that changes you from one sphere to the other is regeneration. When regeneration happens, all of a sudden you know that all possibility has its source in God. But before that, you just think that God is one of many possibilities. Buddhist gods, or Hindu gods, or 
Muslim God or Mormon gods, whatever the case, many possibilities, many ways. So this is the dividing line. This is a very important point of clarification. And I want to walk through it with you with a series of questions that you can answer because you know truth. You understand this, okay? Here's the first question. Prior to Genesis 1-1, what existed? God. Good. Good. You answered that correctly. Just listening out for anything else. Okay. Did anything else exist prior to creation other than the triune God? No. No. Any yes? No. No. Okay. Now here's a more difficult one, but I think you'll get it. What did God require in order to stay in existence? What did he need to keep on keeping on? Nothing. Nothing. Okay. Now, whether you know the terminology or not, you have just affirmed. I didn't actually hear everybody affirm it, so I'm just not sure about some of you guys. We're part of the silent majority. The silent majority of for or against. Yes. So I'll just include you all in there because I'm a gracious guy. But, um, but whether or not you know the terminology, you've just affirmed the absolute existence and self-sufficiency of God. Y'all buy that? Yes. God does not require what is not God in order to be as he is. Another way we could say that is nothing that is not God can make God to be God. God is, in other words, he is absolute being. He is pure being, and therefore he is the only self-sufficient being. Okay, let me ask another question. For anything other than God, did anything come into existence apart from God? No. No, you're right about that too. Another way I ask the question is this, for everything that is not God, did it all depend upon God to come into existence? Yes. yes. Is there anything in this exception to that? No. So again, what you've just affirmed, whether you could put it in these terms or not, is that God is pure being, he is the source of all being, and, or in other words, God is the source and ground of all being. God is the one and only necessary being. Nothing else is necessary. Only God is necessary. All things that exist outside of God, all that is not God, everything else has contingent being. God is necessary being. He is absolute being. All the rest of it, us included, contingent being. And yes, you actually affirmed all of that. God is pure being, he's absolute being, he's necessary being, he's the ground of all being. He exists because he must exist. God cannot not exist. Another way to say it is this. We are able to prove the existence and reality of the Christian God because of the impossibility of the contrary. The fact that anything exists means that something necessary must have pre-existed. And that necessary being is God's being. So if you do not assume the God of the Bible, you cannot prove or assume anything at all. Now let's go back and consider the non-Christian's point of view, which they want us to grant them in order to have a conversation. They want us to entertain the thought that it is possible for God 
to not exist. So let's think about that. Let's say we grant them that thought for just a moment, just to make this point. And we can grant for the sake of argument, even though we don't believe it at all, we can grant that there are two possibilities. This is just for the sake of argument, okay? Two possibilities. Number one possibility, God exists. And number two, God does not exist. Two possibilities. What is the fundamental problem with that thinking? And ultimately, why as Christians can we not, must we never, argue that way? Yeah, I'll grant you your two possibilities. God does exist, God doesn't exist. Why? Why is that fundamentally an error? Yes? Uh, because the fundamental impossibility of God not existing. Okay. So we are, yes, the fundamental impossibility of God not existing. That's true. So what happens if we grant a possibility uh, that he doesn't exist? What are we doing? Well, you're, you're giving away the metaphysical foundation of the discussion. You're right. Exactly. And I love the way you put that. You're giving away the metaphysical foundation, not just of God, but of the discussion itself. That is, you cannot even have this discussion without God being there. Why? Because it just even laws of logic created by God. The language created by God. Um, this interaction between two persons personality created by God predicated on God <clears throat> nothing can be without God first being assumed <clears throat> anybody else want to jump into that the first cause could you also go that route first cause yeah you could say that mm -hmm. the uncaused the first cause there can't be us we could not be having this discussion right. were it not for God True. Is that saying the same thing? Similar, yeah, yeah, similar thing. But I, I, rather than using the word cause, I want to say being. I want to talk about the, the being as the foundation for the everything. Of God. Yeah. yeah. Christy, you raise your hand. Oh, Come I on. was just going to say, if you think about what you're doing, you're denying God. So for a Christian to deny God, I mean, that is sinful. That is... You got it. You know, awful. <laughs> if that's what, you know, if you just choose to... to Right. With them right. Against God. I mean, it's just, you know. Exactly. You're fundamentally denying God yep. just to have a conversation. And we're, we're trying to say, no, we cannot do that. We can't be obedient to 1 Peter 3.15, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts, and then be ready to give an answer. We cannot obey that by denying God. Christ wouldn't have us deny God to have a conversation. Did he ever do that? No. No. Uh, let's go, Leah. Did I see you, Paul? Yeah, okay, so we'll come back. Leah? Um, it just seems like the, the fact that there's even a discussion about whether or not there is a God proves that there is a God because we're, we as human beings are unable to come up with anything new on our own. Like, like everything that we create is borrowed from something somebody else created. So, That's right. So the discussion itself proves God. Yeah, the discussion itself proves God. Um, I'm going to play, uh, as I've told you, I'm going to play the debate between Gordon Stein, the atheist, and Greg Bonson, the theist, Christian theist, and he's going to say that by showing up to this debate tonight, I won. <laughs> That's what he's going to say. And, and you will get a chuckle out of it, and you should. That's when we're understanding uh, yeah, his point. No, no, Greg Bonson, oh, Bonson says, says this, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he said it to Gordon Stein. Okay. It's, it's wonderful, yes. and uh, we're, we're just going to rejoice. Our hearts are going to be warm. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I 
and full that night. Um, but, uh, but that's true. Everything, you know, you see these alien movies and you notice that these aliens are just kind of like distorted pictures of human beings. <laughs> Why? Because you can't come up with anything conceptually that doesn't already have some, you know, basis in reality. Paul. Um, I was just thinking Proverbs 26, 4 and 5, that we're not to answer the fool according to their folly, lest we be like them or likened unto them, but rather to answer the fool, or rather do not answer the fool according to his folly, lest he be like him. But the, the inverse is, mm -hmm. answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. That's right. So We're going to come back to that oh, in just okay. a bit, but no, go no, finish your comment. Well, I was just thinking... You know, it seems like a contradiction initially when you look at that, but he's basically saying first step is you don't embrace the fool's philosophy lest you be foolish. That's right. Well, that's the first pitfall to avoid. And then after that, hypothetically speaking, you can argue on the believers. Uh, you know, I, I might, let me try on your worldview just for a second so I can show you where it leads. Show you where it leads. That's exactly and right. Destroy it. That's exactly right. So we're going to come back to that. So keep that in mind. One more. Is it, um, I think it was last year you had a sermon where you're talking about Josephus and where he found like one thing that he says isn't true in the Bible and then it was found out that it was like a measurement of wealth or something. Um, and he had been looking at it differently. But I remember you said in that sermon that if one thing is untrue in the Bible, then everything is. Yeah. That's kind of like the the argument if we're saying that yes. one thing could be untrue then who's that's to say right. all the rest of it you got it that's right if we're wrong there if, if we're wrong about our christian view of metaphysics uh, the ground of being and everything else yeah we're wrong on everything that's right so we cannot give that ground so the problem as you guys have all said is that you know allowing for two or multiple possibilities as if there's this big wide world of possibility out there and god's just one among many um that fundamentally contradicts what everything you just affirmed very boldly very clearly about the nature of god and his being so according to christian metaphysics god is pure being he's absolute being he's the ground of all being he is not a contingent being he's not one among a number of possibilities he's not he's not even one among a number of Good probabilities, high probabilities. God is necessary being. So anything that is possible doesn't, doesn't provide a foundation for God. Anything that is possible is contingent upon God. Anything that's possible uh, must come from God in his mind, his will, his decree, his power, his purpose. Whatever is possible is only possible because God first exists. His being is fundamental. So here again, Van Til. For the Christian, possibility has its source in God. You understand that now. While for the non-Christian, God has his source in possibility. Make sense? See the difference? Now what relevance does this have for me talking with my unbelieving friend or family member? Much in every way, and specifically in in a most fundamental, most significant way. We are going to reach behind this Mormon friend, and we're going to reach behind his Mormonism. We're going to reach behind his secular atheism or his lazy agnosticism or his philosophical speculation and his endless what-ifs. We're going to go behind all of that, and we're going to step on his air hose, and we're going to choke him out. 
Okay, we're gonna mess with his bank accounts and fuel supplies that are, that are filling, uh, funding the weapons of his warfare. We're gonna take his thinking captive. Okay, that is, this, this is that familiar section, 2 Corinthians 10, three to five. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We're going to grab that thought and say, bow to Christ. Okay? The unbeliever wants us to entertain a very rebellious fantasy. And it's the fantasy that started in the Garden of Eden. It's, has God said? Has God really said? That's one. And then you can make your own reality. You can choose your own ending. You can write your own story. This can be your journey. That's what, that's what uh, the unbeliever entertains in his mind. And for him, God is not the ground of all being, but his own thoughts are. He wants, to, um, us to, he wants us to join him in imagining a world in which God is just one possibility, some, some ethereal, undefined place called the realm of possibility, which is not in existence. <laughs> it's just realm of possibility. So he asks us to think possibility, not God, but possibility. Possibility is the ground of all being. That's what he wants us to think. But possibility does not exist, does it? That's irrational. I hope you see that. The starting point, um, you, you understand that? Whatever is possible or even whatever is probable, it's not yet in existence. Okay? So it's not even there. It's called a potentiality, not an actuality. Okay? So whatever's possible has not yet come into existence. So has no existence in and of itself. So we can never give ground to unbelieving thinking to say that God is one among a number of possibilities. That's to join them in their irrational thinking, which we're not allowed to do, 1 Peter 3.15. So the starting point for all unbelieving thinking, it starts with irrationality. It starts with fantasy. It starts with that which does not exist. Hope that's clear. So the nature of presuppositional apologetics is to help the unbeliever see that. We're just trying to raise that and the specter of their thinking in their mind's eye, so they're like, start to dawn on them, oh, yeah, there's a, that doesn't make sense. That's what we want them to say. That's what we want to come, them to come to an understanding of. So is, uh, um, I'm blanking on your name right now. Paul. Paul, yeah, Paul just said, and to join them in their irrational thinking is a really a, a severe, on our part, a severe tactical blunder. Uh, which Proverbs 26.4 warns us about. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. So by letting him frame the argument, allowing him to set the foundation of reality where God is just one among a number of possibilities, we would be surrendering the argument even before it starts. We cannot do that. So God is not one among many possibilities. As the only self-sufficient being, he is the source of all being. He is the source of all becoming. Um, therefore, he's, even the concept of possibility is not possible without the fundamental certainty of God. Okay? In order for possibility to exist, there has to be certainty as a foundation. Otherwise, possibility fails to materialize. Potentiality fails to become reality and actuality. Okay? So back to Van Til's quote again. For the theist, possibility has its source in God, while for the anti-theist, God has his source in possibility. Make sense now? 
making it's becoming clear? Okay, good. All that is possible is only possible because God is there, because God is absolute being. He's pure being, therefore necessary being, and that's Van Til's point. Since God is the source of all possibility, he is the ultimate backdrop of all true thinking. All possibilities are only possible if God says they're possible, okay? Um, so this is where we see the deep antithesis that exists between the reasoning of a believer and the reasoning of an unbeliever. Van Til says for Christian theism, God is the source of all that's possible, probable, potential, but for the anti-theist, the possible, probable, potential is the source of God, and that is the starting point of all their rebellion, to deny Christian metaphysics, which understands God is the source of all being, and therefore of all potentiality. So, what is the money? What is the currency of all rebellion? What is the fuel that helps the unbeliever continue his intellectual and spiritual warfare against the God of the universe? Well, his fundamental starting point which comes from, which is a fundamental starting point of unreality. It's, he's basing it all on fantasy. He's basing it all on just dreams coming out of his head. A little, a little seeds of doubt sown by Satan, which just, question, just asks questions but provides no answers. <clears throat> Satan asked questions and said, Eve, you fill in the blank. You fill in the blank. So that's where the unbelieving starting point is in his thinking, in his metaphysics, its unreality, what might be, what could be. It's the realm of imaginary possibility. The unbeliever then starts from there and can go no, no, nowhere else but irrationality. He can only build irrationally from there. He operates with a, a whole host of biases and prejudices and assumptions, presuppositions, all of which are untested and unargued and unwarranted. So that is our task as Christian apologists, to expose all those unargued and unwarranted biases and prejudices to show how they rest on a foundation of non-existence, of potentiality in something that isn't even materialized, and demonstrate the fundamental irrationality of his unbelieving worldview. So we are going to, and this is the other verse that Paul brought up, Proverbs 26, 5. We're going to answer this fool as his folly deserves, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Okay, we're going to enter into his worldview for a little bit. Take it out to its, let, let's run it out a little bit. Let's run the line out and see, see what happens. So all of that has been an illustration of the significance of the difference between the believer and the unbeliever in the issue of metaphysics. If we were to carry this into epistemology and into ethics, those other two parts of any comprehensive worldview, worldview we'd be able to Identify the differences between the believing and the unbelieving use of reason with regard to how we know what we know, um, how they live an ethical or non-ethical life, what the source and foundation of their ethics is. We'd be able to see how the believing uh, use of reason, uh, in contrast, is the only sound use of reason, uh, the only rational use of reason. We'd see, conversely, how the unbelieving use of reason reads to nothing but irrationality, nothing but folly, nothing but futility. Okay? Any questions on what I've said so far? I've got time for I've got just a few minutes for questions. Mm. Okay, Paul? I was just thinking maybe another way to say it is that they, they don't really have a foundation for what they believe to be true. There's no real basis for it because their worldview begins with God is possible or God uh, or, or God is not rather than God is. 
they're hanging out in thin air. Their feet are firmly planted in midair. They've got no foundation right. for believing what they believe. They're just floating. Yeah, yeah they're so floating. They need to see that mm -hmm. so that they might not be so, they might, that they might not be wise in their own eyes, believing that they have sound reason to be comfortable. It is the evidence of their sin that they're actually proud about that floating around in space, not having anything to rest on, not having anything to stand upon, except what comes from some man's mind, just made up. Gary? Yeah, that's what I was going to go to, is they get to make that determination themselves. They get to be the one in charge, and that's all pride. That's sin. That's yeah. pride. That's right. That's exactly right. Gary? Yeah, how does uh, I hear this statement quite a bit. Uh, all truth is God's truth. How does that fit in with what we're talking about? Because it seems like there's a distortion there. Uh, it sounds well, noble, but... Yeah, all truth is God's truth, and all error is the devil's error. The question is, do you have the wisdom to sort out one from the other? Does okay. it also imply how truth is used? I mean, if truth is not reflecting back on God, it's misapplied truth or it isn't truth to begin with. Well, this is a part of, uh, I, I cut out of my notes, this whole section on epistemology and, and basically um, the difference between the unbelieving way of thinking and the believing way of thinking. So since you're bringing it up, I'll, it's not written down, but I will enter into this because Gary demanded it, and he's an elder. <laughs> it's the difference between univocal thinking and analogy, uh, thinking by analogy, analogous thinking. Okay? Univocal thinking is thinking basically, it's determination, it's definitional. God is the only one who thinks univocally. He, he and he alone, when he thinks something, it is reality. It is truth. Okay? The unbeliever, because of the fall, fancies himself to think just like God. You know, think back to Satan when he fell, you know, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, those passages. I will, I will, I will, I will be like the Most High, I will be like God, I will ascend into the, the cloud. I will, I will, I will. So, following Satan's pattern, unbelievers, the non-Christian world, they want to fancy themselves as being very godlike and thinking univocally. I can think it, and it defines reality. That's how God thinks. I think, and I define reality. That's, and it's, he does think that way. We think, though, not by univocal thinking. We don't. Everything we learn, we learn by way of analogy, analogous thinking. We learn from God. God is our interpreter. So we take what he said, and then we interpret our world through that, analogous thinking. That is the difference between a Christian and non-Christian, the way they think. The problem is Christians, they sometimes get into that wrong thinking. They don't think God's thoughts after him. They want to step away from the Bible and say all truth is God's truth. So anything that's out there that's true, I can be the sole arbiter of that and figure out, you know, chew up the meat and spit out the bones, so to speak. And we're saying, no, no, no. Bring your mind, put it under the subjection to Scripture, and let Scripture then be the prism through which you look at the world. And that way you can determine not just what truth is out there, but also what error is out there. So you have discernment and good judgment. Okay? So all truth is God's truth. If it's true, it's because God 
thought it, said it, recreated it, brought it into existence. All error is also the devil's error. And he, um, you know, it's a, he's a, he's lecherous. He's a, he's like a um, parasite on the truth and feeding off of it and then distorting it and offering something else. Wayne. Chat, since, since you went down this road anyway, uh, just in way of proving to your own mind that very concept, this is also the very reason why we cannot think about where God existed before space-time was created because we have no analogy for our brains to latch onto that concept. That's a great, uh, yeah, that's a great illustration right there. That's exactly right. Okay? Does that scratch that edge, or? Yeah, because we have people here that were in leadership at one time and made that comment, and it just, and it just never sat well right. with me because it seems like if you, it was kind of, I felt like sometimes to justify psychology, to justify... Yeah. They would say, hey, listen, listen, you know, we can just plunder the Egyptians, you know, just like the Israelites left Egypt and plundered the Egyptians and took all their goods and everything else uh, and took off and, and actually built their society based on the gold from Egypt. Well, they actually built an idol based on the gold from Egypt, um, but uh, but they plundered the Egyptians in the same way. We can go into what psychology has to offer and philosophy has to offer and plunder the Egyptians in the same way. Uh, you know, <laughs> Any thinking that they plundered from the Egyptians got them into idolatry and, and the judgment of God. So no, plundering the Egyptians is a bad analogy, Patrick. You know, it's bad. There's a few of us who understand that. Look it up on, on YouTube, bad analogy, Patrick. You'll get a kick out of it. All right. Okay, no more questions? Good, we'll move on. I mean, not good. I, you know what I mean. I might actually finish my notes, is what I'm saying. So, um, that would be a miracle. Yeah, would be. Then we we cannot deny the supernatural, right? It's a miracle. I do believe. Okay. So. Without any uh, solid foundational in rational Christian metaphysics, that is, God is the source of all being, the non-Christian epistemology is all mixed up. Their eth ethics are a total scrambled mess. So we want to help the unbeliever see how his reasoning is going to lead to this inevitable contradiction. And not just from a theistic point of view, but also from a non-theistic point of view. If we enter into the, the unbeliever's folly and help him trace that out a little bit, we're going to be able to reduce the unbeliever's thinking to absurdity. That is the, the tactic called reductio ad absurdum, reasoning, that un, reasoning to absurdity, showing that the, uh, the reasoning was reduced to absurdity. We're going to reason from the, uh, also from the impossibility of the contrary, the transcendental argument for the existence of God. So... Once you have demonstrated to the unbeliever, now I'm just, I'm just giving an overview, uh, just looking at this from a, from a bird's eye view. Um, once you have demonstrated to the unbeliever that his reasoning <coughs> and his worldview leads to absurdity, it leads to irrationality, it is really helpful if he admits it. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes it, they do admit it. Oftentimes they don't. But... If you demonstrate to the unbeliever his reasoning, his worldview, leads to irrationality, leads to absurdity, leads to futility, 
You have just accomplished the apologetic task. Okay? That's all you're trying to do with apologetics is close his mouth. Gospel is what tells him the truth. Gospel is what introduces him to Christ, brings him to before the law of God so his conscience is convicted and he can see his need for Christ. You point out the solution is found in Christ and faith and repentance and all that. But apologetics is about shutting his mouth. Okay? You're reducing his worldview to absurdity. You're showing how his thinking leads to irrationality. So we're going to help him see the futile, irrational implications of their unbelieving worldview. And then we're going to, in the face of that, we're going to vindicate the Christian worldview as the only rational view. We are going to show how they are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. So as we reduce their worldview to absurdity, we come in and say, now let's test the Christian worldview. And I'll show you my Christian view of metaphysics, epistemology, ethics. They're all of a piece. They're all one. They all flow together. They're totally consistent. Test it. See if that's true. That's what we're telling them. So back to the definition of apologetics. Apologetics is the vindication of the Christian philosophy of life against the various forms of the non-Christian philosophy of life. So again, after dismantling the unbeliever's worldview, which really can take some time, but from then on, after we dismantle it, every time that guy rises up in pride to say anything against Christianity, you simply remind him that, oh, remember we talked about this, your reasoning leads to absurdity. <laughs> I'm not listening. Your, your, your thinking is grounded in irrationality. We've already talked about that, remember? The unbeliever has no leg to stand on. He's got no ground upon which to rise up. In fact, the only way he can rise up and rebel against God is because he's standing on your worldview. We'll talk about that. So in this way, the Christian worldview has been vindicated against the unbeliever because his mouth has been stopped before God's truth. We've been obedient to 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5, not to wage war according to the flesh, not to, not to use weapons of the flesh. Instead, we're destroying arguments. We're destroying every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Okay? We want to be patient, meek people. We want to be kind people, gracious people. And even though uh, Van Til put it this way, we're always ready to buy that next cup of coffee, to have that conversation, to go into the coffee shop once again, talk about it over and over and over. Sometimes this takes, it's years in the making, these conversations. But our goal in apologetics and the nature of the apologetic task is to disarm the unbeliever. And we're basically using his own weapons against him. Okay? We're going to take away his weapons. We're going to use them on him. So answering the fool as his folly deserves, we are annihilating his atheistic philosophy, lest he be wise in his own eyes, thinking he has a good reason to rebel. We want to take away all of his reasons for rebellion. Okay, so we've clarified and illustrated the apologetic task, and I want to skip ahead in the outline that I created and, and provide you um, with just a little outline of this presuppositional approach we're talking about and just give you a glimpse of what we're trying to explain here. Uh, so I'm going to give you kind of, here's the, here's the way we're going to do apologetics. It's not necessarily a four-step process and then sequential steps. There are four points or steps, but you could go three, then one, then four, then back to three, and then two, and you, they can come out of order, okay? So these are different things that will come up in a conversation. 
And after I explained the steps and just briefly described and showed the contrast between the Christian and non-Christian view, um, then we're going to do a little exercise together, which I think you're going to do pretty well on after hearing that, okay? So if you're taking notes, here's the third point. Number three, this is really creative, I know, but it's outlining <laughs> the apologetic task, outlining. I just want to mention again, this, um, Paul said it, but it's a two-fold apologetic approach. We introduced it earlier in the year, and now we want to reintroduce it. Here it is in Proverbs, write down Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. <coughs> Verse 5 says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Okay, so Proverbs 26, 4 and 5 is a two-fold apologetic approach. Answer not a fool according to his folly. That is to say, do not enter into his unbelieving worldview. Do not say, hey, I'll grant you two possibilities or three or, a, you know, a million and 52, whatever. We're not going to do that. We're not going to answer a fool uh, in line with his folly, lest we be like him ourselves. We do not, we can't do that. We're Christians. We're obedient to Christ. But we do want to, number two, we do want to answer a fool according to his folly, or in the way the NAS translates it, answer a fool as his folly deserves, okay? Lest he be wise in his own eyes. That is, enter into his worldview for a moment and say, let's, let's tease that out a little bit. Let's take, your, let's take your argument and let's run that out and see what happens. What is the end of that way of thinking? What is the end of you saying, Everybody has a right to live however they want to, and then you being all up in arms about people who are against abortion. I mean, let, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the inherent contradiction in that. Let's run that out a little bit. If everybody has a right to live however they want to, why can't some people oppose abortion? Why are you angry about it? If you do think there are absolute standards, then everybody can't live there however they want to. So which is it? They're being absolutely arbitrary, okay? That's what we're going to do. Cornelius Van Til taught this. Greg Monson helped to develop and popularize this approach. And now we're going to learn how to practice it too. So here's that method, uh, the fourfold method for answering a fool as his folly deserves. This is the second half, Proverbs 26, 5. Um, and we're going to utterly <laughs> demolish his irrational worldview. And I'm just going to mention it now, and then we're going to unpack it in time here in coming weeks we need to understand that the unbeliever's thinking is arbitrary. Uh, that is, it's based on his whims. Um, it's prejudiced. Uh, it's filled with what's called dialectical tensions, that is, logical tension. And it's fundamentally irrational. So this gives us four ways to dismantle his worldview. Number one, here it is. Number one, we're going to expose the unbeliever's arbitrariness. We're going to expose the unbeliever's arbitrariness. That is, we're going to show how his thinking is based on his whims. It's not grounded in anything real. And he's being arbitrary. Sometimes choosing to cite the facts. Sometimes he's choosing just to cite his preferences. And he never tells you which is which. Okay? Arbitrary. Number two. We're going to expose his unargued philosophical biases. Biases. His prejudices. We are going to expose his unargued 
philosophical biases, his unargued philosophical prejudices. An example of this would be, um, we know the Bible isn't true because, well, like we, we were talking Wednesday night about the book of Jonah. Derek, Gary did a great job talking about the book of Jonah. Well, how many miracles are in Jonah? Well, at least 9, 10, maybe 11. 9, 10, 11. So different miracles in Jonah. And the unbeliever just, he, he, can't, he doesn't argue for this bias, but he says, I don't believe in the Bible because miracles are in the Bible. Miracles are in Jonah. I don't believe in whatever. That's a philosophical bias against the supernatural. And he, in that conversation he's having with you, he has not argued for that. He has not proven that. He hasn't proven that miracles can't exist. He hasn't even proven that the only thing that exists is natural, material reality. So he has not argued for this. We need to call him on it. We can't let him get away with it. Okay, the third thing. We're going to provoke the dialectical tension within his worldview. We're going to provoke. We are going to provoke. We're going to be provocateur. <laughs> and we're going to provoke the dialectical tension in his worldview. That is, we're going, to we're going to show and kind of raise to the surface and make him feel a logical inconsistency. We're going to want him to feel uncomfortable with it. Okay? And then number four, we're going to show how his worldview fails to provide the preconditions of intelligibility. His worldview, number four, we're going to show how his worldview fails to provide the preconditions of intelligibility. His worldview cannot explain life as we see it, life as we live it, life as we know it. Okay? Is, huh? Last one? Repeat, yeah, We're going to show how his worldview fails to provide the preconditions of intelligibility. Chuck, what are the preconditions of intelligibility? What does that mean, actually? I was afraid you were going to ask, ask me that. <laughs> that, that, that term, that statement, I've always struggled with that. What does it mean, actually? Um, okay. Um, I'll tell you what you told me, if I can find it. Uh, what, uh, the preconditions of intelligibility is what must be true if we were to have, if we are to have any rational view of anything, um, only to be found in the being and revelation of God. Otherwise, there's no basis for concluding anything at all. Sounds great, Chad. That is good. <laughs> yeah, you probably need to shout it out to Alyssa in the back there. What must be true if we are to have any rational view of anything? That's what a precondition of intelligibility is. The precondition means it's like, okay, what do we have as a basis for understanding anything? That's all that means. And the basis is what must be true if we are to have any rational view of anything? And that is only to be found in the being and the revelation of God. Otherwise, there's no basis for concluding anything at all. Okay, good. Yes, Paul. If I could shrink it down, I would just say that there are certain things that must be true in advance for knowledge to be possible. Yeah, certain things that must be true for, for knowledge to be possible, but really... It, it's more than just knowledge being possible. It has to do with our understanding and making sense of it. So intelligibility, it's, it's being able to see how this connects with that. It's, it's making sense of the world around us. Making sense of why you don't like it when I grab your wallet and take out the money and go buy a burger. Now we can draw <laughs> conclusions about anything right. based on reason. Right. Yeah, so it's making sense of anything. So what must be true in order for us to make sense out of anything? It's just a, laws of logic would certainly have to be one of them. Laws of logic would have to be one. 
um, or, or morality given to us by God. Yes. Yeah, laws and rationality and debate. That's right. Exactly. And we're going to come back to some of that. Uh, guys, don't worry. We'll go through a whole bunch of stuff on logic. I know you're just eager, <laughs> eager to bite it. Better. Um, modus ponens and modus tollens and all that. Yes, please. So, so by, uh, let me, let me give you, so let me just read those again real quick. We're going to expose number one. We're going to expose the unbelievers arbitrariness. Number two, we're going to expose his unargued philosophical biases, his unargued philosophical prejudices. Number three, we're going to provoke the dialectical tension within his worldview. And number four, we're going to show how his worldview fails to provide the preconditions of intelligibility. Now, by contrast, number one, the Christian worldview is not arbitrary. It's not based on our whim. It's consistently irrational because it's based in the being and the mind of God, who never changes. Okay? There's no arbitrariness with God. He is the unchanging God. He is immutable. He is rock solid, never changing. So there's no whim. There's no arbitrariness in God. So it's consistently rational, and then it's capable of being soundly reasoned. Number two, the Christian worldview doesn't obfuscate and hide or disguise any of its unargued biases, but instead, the Christian worldview exposes its belief system. I believe in whatever God said. Supernatural things happen, like he started the whole world uh, and created nature. I believe that. I believe he intervened and, 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 and uh, you know, tr- call it transgressed, you know, with small t, very small t, transgressed natural laws that he's put into motion in order to do something supernatural, above nature. And God can do that because he's God, because I believe everything from the starting point. So uh, we are not hiding our biases and our prejudices. We're actually exposing them and bringing them to the forefront. These are our presuppositions. This is what we believe. So we're transparent and we are actually eager for scrutiny to expose those believing presuppositions. Why? Because that's the very stuff the Holy Spirit uses to actually save somebody. And they say, hey, put that to the test. So I started exposing that. I started telling them what the scripture says. Well, it's danger point. Better watch out. You're about to get saved. (laughs) Number three, Christian worldview is the only worldview where there is no dialectical tension at all. It's rationally consistent. Its ethics, its epistemology are founded upon its metaphysics. That is that God is pure being. He's the source of all being. So there is no tension. There's no dialectical. There's no logical tension. When the true God of the Bible is assumed, and we're consistent with that all the way through, everything makes sense. Number four, um, the Christian worldview is the only worldview able to provide the preconditions of intelligibility. That is, we are able to make sense of everything in life. Um, whether it's beauty or harmony or music or poetry or logic or argumentation, uh, jurisprudence, we're, we're able to make sense of anything, politics even, as crazy as it is these days, but we're able to make sense of anything because the Christian worldview is the only worldview that provides us with the preconditions of intelligibility. Okay? So again, we are not trying to pr- prove the reasonableness of believing in the probability of God we intend to show the absolute provability of God, his existence by the impossibility of the contrary. That is a valid form of logical inference, which is called a, a transcendental argument for the existence of God. And we're going to help the unbeliever see 
that apart from the Christian, apart from Christian theism, it's impossible to prove anything at all. Okay, so that is the outline with an explanation in a nutshell. And I'm going to just attempt here to put this into practice with you just briefly with this little exercise. Okay, unbelievers, as we said, they like to imagine that they live in a chance universe. That is the realm of the possible and the potential, uh, not defined by God, but defined by self or whatever. Intuitively, they know that they're not. They don't live by what they say they want to believe. What they say, how they live, do not comport with one another. So take, for example, uh, the song Imagine by John Lennon. You ever heard that? Here's how it goes. You want me to sing it? No. Imagine there's no heaven. This is where it starts out, right out of the gate. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Let's stop right there. Just those first four lines. No heaven, it's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. That is bias, prejudice, against an afterlife, and for a materialistic, naturalistic view of the world, which is unargued, unproven. He just states it. And it's easy if you try. It's easy if you try. Let's <laughs> imagine it. Can you imagine a pink unicorn? I can. It's easy if you try. Here's the second line. Imagine there's no countries. It, it isn't. First of all, the grammar. Really <laughs> countries is plural. There are no countries, Mr. Lennon. Rock band guys. Uh, my mom is even, man, just I can hear her now. She's saying, no. So, mom, I have to do this. This is a song lyrics. And here it is. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion, too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You, ooh, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I think that last bit was unargued. The only good part of the song was like, you, ooh, ooh. Thank you. So you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. So going back to imagine there's no country, it's not hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, no religion too. That's utterly arbitrary. That's just Lenin's whim. It's just whim thinking, okay? So now that truly is what I've just quoted there is truly is a dream. His dream. It's grounded in the atheistic dream world of potentiality and possibility. And no heaven and no hell means no accountability for actions here on earth. People living for today means hedonism. Whether it's the baser kind of hedonism, like beer and monster truck rallies or whatever, or world you know, wrestling and federation, or whether it's the hedonism of fine wines and chocolates and cheeses and all that kind of stuff. The higher pleasures. Hedonism. So people living for today, hedonism, living for personal pleasure and all according to personal preference. Exactly. Okay, so, so keep that in mind. You're so far ahead of me, really. But wait, wait. 
Every mother knows exactly what dialectical tension is all but about. Pray that his children will learn to be kind. <laughs> So okay, so um, so keep keep that in mind. This, this is this this dream world of potentiality, possibility, no heaven, no hell, no accountability, but people living for today, hedonism, personal pleasure, personal preference. Keep that in mind. Listen to the rest of the lyrics. Here he goes. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. So tell me, in very quick succession here, what contradictions are inherent in the dream world that John Lennon wants you to imagine? What are the tensions, those dialectical tensions, the logical tensions in Mr. Lennon's worldview? He got a lot of possessions. <laughs> he got a lot of possessions. <laughs> so we're just talking about so he you're you're basically seeing hypocrisy is what, is what you're saying. okay good let's go over here Bruce you know, one thing that comes to my mind is socialism that's kind of the viewpoint that social Ideally, Sure, socialism, communism. Yeah, he wants to. He wants to rid of the world of possessions. But what is that intention with? Everybody, everybody, sure everybody wants what they want. It doesn't work. Okay, it is intention with practicality and pragmatism. It doesn't work, and every socialistic system falls. But the problem is, if you take that socialistic point of view, all the people sharing all the world. Imagine all the people living for today, living for self, living for now. You can't do that. You can't do that. You've got to, you've got to join the collective thinking and the group thinking, the whole and everything, and be your little worker bee and play your role in order to keep this. You have to think broader, not just about self. Yeah, good. He couldn't have his band. What's that? He couldn't have his band because he didn't work together with other people. He couldn't have his band because he could Yeah, this is John Lennon solo right here. <laughs> but that's the rest of the world. He couldn't even work with them. Good. Did you have something? Okay. That, that was my point. Okay, good. You can share while you're being selfish about what you're doing. Exactly. Okay, Christy. Well, I was just thinking there's, there's also a measure of heaven. There, there's also a measure of, like, the kingdom of God. In his thinking, he's denying God, but in his heart, there's eternity is set in his heart. So he's talking about peace. You know, I want peace. I want comfort where I don't have to, security, where I don't have to worry about, you know, um, possessions. He said brotherly, you know, we want everything along. And I'm going, well, yeah, that's going to happen in the kingdom of God. And you know, he just said didn't exist. <laughs> right. He wants it on his own terms. He wants it on his own terms. He wants to define a heaven that is his own. Right. That's right. That's right. A heaven without God. That's right. But a heaven, she, oh, I'm sorry. A heaven without, well, a heaven without God wouldn't be possible. But a heaven without God and everybody living for themselves, that would be hell. Everybody, yeah, that's yeah. true. And he says yeah. there's no hell, but that would be hell. Can you imagine that? I mean... We can always add another verse. <laughs> that would be horrible, though. Everybody looking for themselves. Well, they kind of already do. <laughs> they kind of already do. Order! 
answer? All right, so we'll go with Leah and then Lee. Um, this may have been mentioned already. Um, he's borrowing from God's standard of morality. Um, and... Where do you see that? Oh, uh, well, okay, um, I don't remember. Brotherly affection. Okay. I don't remember all the different points, but the, the brotherly affection, the idea of a... He's touching on a world without gravity. <laughs> Um, which again is is an ideal that God sets forth in Scripture, but He's trying to He's borrowing from it, but also trying to recreate it. Yeah, recast it. So he's, he cannot come up with something that's completely on his own. He has to borrow from the Christian worldview concepts like peace, sharing, unity, oneness, brotherhood. He's got to bring all these from another worldview, our worldview. How dare he? He's a thief. <laughs> but he's taking it from our worldview, and then he's inserting it into an atheistic worldview, where there is no ground or possibility for any of those terms. Okay, how do you, in an atheistic worldview, materialistic worldview, where nothing exists except for atoms and matter is eternal, where does a concept like peace come from? And there's no Why should we want unity? What's, who cares about that? What's wrong with fighting? I like to fight. Don't you like to fight? <laughs> Let's go to war. You know? Like what if that's my greatest pleasure? All right. I, I was, just kidding, Rich. I'm right where she was. I was just saying he's presupposing a moral good, and that has to come from, you know, a Christian worldview. That's right. Good. Presupposing moral good. Let's start with Paul and then Wayne. So they're worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. They want God's concepts that reject him. Yeah. That's right. They want the benefits and blessings of God without the God. And I call that in the church. I used to try to say, you know, we need to be careful that we are not seeking God's hand and not seeking his heart. We need to seek his heart. Wayne? Yeah, um, it's not necessarily dialectical, but it, it's worth pointing out that if you follow the logic of no heaven, no hell, right, mm -hmm. uh, the preconditions of intelligibility are lost, right? It's, it's one of the saddest possible concepts you could it follow. It is. Um, it's absolute despair. <coughs> Hopelessness. Because there is a clock ticking right now. Yeah. And, and there's a ceiling on my existence. Yeah, but not for John Lennon. His clock's already His clock stopped. But the money that he makes is still going, by the way. The money that he makes, he's sharing That's it with everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, yeah, the man is wealthy and Josh. Josh. I mean, the guy who killed him was applying his song. He was living for today. He said that he did it because he wanted to be somebody. Mm. Um, so that, I, and people will bring up the, like the lyrics of the song and how it's that, those lyrics, and then him being murdered is just a tragic showing of how um, someone didn't get his vision. Someone did get his vision. Mm -hmm. and a little bit too That was his application. Yeah, the vision here is filled with contradictions, and, and you know, it's just, just it's kind of like a dream, really. <laughs> when you think about your own dreams, you wake up, and you're like, Ele elephants don't stomp around on, in, in work boots and then jump on skis and go down the hill. Total contradiction. Break their leg. So by removing, by removing all accountability in, found in an afterlife, 
and advocating all people living for today, why should they join Lenin in uniting the world as one, right? How can everyone pursuing desires of individual autonomy and preference, how, how can that result in bringing everyone together in unity? Doesn't hedonism have a fracturing effect? And that's what you were saying, Lord. What makes the world will be as one an ideal to strive for? Again, that's, is that arbitrary? Isn't all the people living for today in stark contradiction with the world will be as one? If we take um, the Muslim view of reality and consider their plan for imagining all people living life in peace, quoted, quoting from Lenin's song, Islam, they say, is a religion of peace. Oh, no. Right? As long as everyone submits to the will of Allah revealed in the Quran. It's peaceful. As long as you submit, right? And so that is, in their estimation, that is something worth killing and dying for. Contrary to Lenin, they believe Islam is a religion worth maintaining and the way that the world will be as one. So they, that's what they imagine. Um, so just what makes Lenin's dream superior to Muhammad's dream? Or Buddha's dream? Or Hitler's dream? Hitler wanted to unite the world under his rule, right? There is no basis for this worldview. There is no basis for it at all. So let's uh, ask. I was, I was even thinking, really, the foundation of his religion goes back to evolution. Yeah, it does. And evolution says it's the, the, uh, the strong survive. And so that's what you're going to see if you remove the heaven and hell and everything else, as Wayne was talking about. There is no God, and man is God. It's the survival of the fittest. It is. Not. It's a brutal world. It's a despairing, dark, discouraging, <clears throat> hopeless world with no salvation and nothing that answers the true questions that we have. You know, those ultimate questions written in John Blanchard's book, none of what Lenin just described there called us to imagine. Um, None of that's going to answer any of those questions. And, and there's no evidence that that's ever taken place anywhere. So, um, yeah, so his mind was like a bag of cats, you know, just <laughs> scrambling around his head. You know, he, he had no... He was trying to hurt them. <laughs> he, 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 because he did, he combined that, that Western secularism with, with New Age Hindu mysticism and all that stuff. He blended it all together, and it was just a scrambled mess. And you could not find anything... Uh, rational or reasonable or or consistent at all. <laughs> <laughs>